This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. We are so excited to be kicking off our podcast today by talking about what OCD is. We'll be discussing everything from what obsessions and compulsions look like to what happens in the brain when someone has OCD. In this, our very first episode, you'll hear us talk about how you and your client can understand the complexities of OCD and you'll learn to think about it in a way that will make the OCD uncertainty seem clearer. Let's get started. Celine, I'm excited. This is going to be fun today, I think. I think so too. I'm super excited about today's episode where you and I get to have a grand old chat about what OCD is. Look, I'm excited about that because I think that whenever you're skilling up and training in something new, I think having those fundamentals is really helpful. People throw around the phrase OCD a lot. And as you and I know so well, and our clients know even better, is that what people often think OCD is, is not often what OCD actually is. And the experience is often very different to what people kind of imagine or what's been represented in film and television and stuff. So I'm excited to have the opportunity to break it down a bit and get a bit more specific. Absolutely. Me too. I know a massive peeve of my clients is when people use OCD as an adjective to describe a quirk or some other thing that they might be experiencing and they just feel so infuriated. And so they should because it's so pathological and it's so impactful on life in not a good way that you wouldn't really want to be experiencing it day to day. No. When people are talking about, like, I'm so OCD, the thing that they're not holding in mind, and often it's because they just don't have awareness and no one stopped to tell them, is that there is a lot of distress and huge amounts of fear and anxiousness and overwhelm attached to having OCD. Absolutely. And a really strong desire to not want to be doing those behaviours. Yeah. A feeling of being stuck and trapped. Yeah. As opposed to thinking oh, this is helpful for me, I'm going to keep doing it and I like this behaviour. I guess it's what people imply when they're using it as an adjective with no awareness as to how debilitating it actually is. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what OCD is then because we started talking about what it is not. <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> what it actually is. I've been a psychologist for quite a number of years now and I have treated many young people with OCD, but it's only been in later stage of my career that I've started to really knuckle down and understand OCD and get really specific in my work. And I think that is in part because advocacy for OCD has grown and I think we know more now. But what I really appreciate as a practitioner, the clients and families that I work with really appreciate is once you really know what OCD is, treatment makes so much sense. It's just so logical. Oh, totally. Actually understanding OCD, where it comes from, how it works, it's the driver for change. A hundred percent. And once people, especially support people who are supporting a loved one with OCD, 
really understand all of that too. So much change happens and it's just so wonderful to watch it happen. Yeah, I agree. We know that OCD is a mental health disorder. When you're exploring OCD with a client, the things that you're really looking for are the presence of intrusive thoughts and compulsions. So if we start with intrusive thoughts, they are those recurrent and persistent thoughts or urges or images or feelings that a person is getting. Now we know that intrusive thoughts and urges and feelings are a part and parcel of being human. They're not something we control. We all experience them. But what is significant in the instance of OCD is that they are unwanted and they cause distress. A person really wants to rid themselves of these images and often experiences a lot of feelings like shame or fear or distress as a result of having these intrusive thoughts, urges, feelings, images. Another thing that you want to watch for is when the person is experiencing these things, they're trying to suppress them, get rid of them, they're engaging in behaviours to try to avoid or to get rid of them. And then there's the compulsions, which is the thing that the person is doing to try to manage the intrusive thoughts and the feelings attached to those intrusive thoughts. So they're repetitive behaviors. Now, the most classic that I think that people think of the most are the hand-washing behaviors. It's a never-ending list because it's really unique to the individual. But the ones that you see most frequently are things like checking behaviors, ordering behaviors, reassurance-seeking, washing as well as mental compulsions such as praying, repeating, redoing, those sorts of behaviours. Not that it's a repetitive behaviour, but it is a distressing, unwanted repetitive behaviour that someone would stop doing if they could. And the other component is really is that those behaviours are designed to get rid of those unwanted feelings. It's about trying to get rid of that distress, trying to stop that feeling, trying to reduce the anxiousness and the stress so that they can stop feeling stuck and can move on with their day. So it's really a maladaptive way of regulating distress, isn't it, over time? Absolutely. When we get to the bit about how this works in the brain, we know really clearly that when people are engaged in these compulsions, they tend to get worse over time because they're just reinforcing a response in the brain that is unhelpful that doesn't actually get rid of the thoughts or the feelings long term. It just gives momentary relief, but then it comes flooding straight back. And of course, with any mental health disorder, if you're going to diagnose it, it has to have significant functional impact. If these experiences for a person are really interrupting their study life, their school life, their social life, their relationships, their work life, you can start thinking about as being OCD. These are some of the things I've been experiencing, but I think that functional impact, like with any condition, is really the third one that needs to really be met, that criteria in terms of how much is it impacting your life and which areas of your life is it impacting and how much distress are you actually experiencing with this? Because as you mentioned earlier, I think that's a really key criteria and I think this is what lends people to use it a bit as an adjective going, oh, yeah, I am a bit OCD. And it's like, are you really? But then... <laughs> You know, that idea of if it's not causing you distress and it's not impacting on your life in different areas to a certain degree, then it's absolutely not OCD. We do all experience intrusive thoughts. We can't control what pops into our head exactly like what you said earlier. I think that's a really important factor. And I think once families and loved ones like partners, etc., get to understand what OCD actually is, they too can start to identify, oh, yeah, I have had a thought like that before or... It doesn't make any logical sense, but I can see how this makes OCD sense and that understanding comes in. 
But a lot of the time when we have our clients present to us, it's because it's impacting not just that person, but other members of the family. It becomes insidious, doesn't it? Like an ivy growing in all sorts of areas. And like, no matter how much you cut it back, you can't get rid of it. (laughs) I'm sorry to people out there who love them. (laughs) No, I think a lot of gardeners can set agapanthers a weed and recommend you don't plant them. (laughs) Yeah, for international (laughs) listeners, we have agapanthers everywhere. (laughs) Thinking about what you were saying just there is that I've tended to find that a lot of time, by the time a young person or a client or a family is presenting, it's because they've reached that functional impact stage. They have tried to manage or they've wondered if it'll just sort of take care of itself, but it's often because there's real conflict in the family or a young person has developed depression as well or have other anxiety disorders. The young person is just not functioning very well. It's very similar for adults. A relationship might be starting to break down a little bit, communication breaks down or work starts to suffer and all of that stuff. It's a very similar pattern. But this is the thing, like OCD starts off so innocently, doesn't it? I mean, it's natural for a parent or partner to want to reassure a loved one. Like, And we're seeing it so much now with COVID and all the rest of it going, oh, like I'm a bit fluey, don't touch that. Maybe we should just wipe that down or maybe I should just double check this or jumping on Google and checking for symptoms with COVID and all the rest of it. Like how many of us have done that in the last couple of years? Absolutely. Of course you'll be fine. No, you'll be all right. Yeah, and it all starts so innocently and it doesn't take long to do either. I'll just quickly ask for reassurance and then you can move on with your day because it settles that discomfort. But that over time, and it's a slow burn process, that over time ends up with this massive cycle of OCD, which takes us into that next section of what does OCD actually look like? Yeah. Tori and I, as well as the other team members in our clinic, use a particular treatment model that's not ours. (laughs) (laughs) I learned it about 12 years ago now when I was working at the OCD inpatient program at a private hospital here in Melbourne called the Melbourne Clinic. So that's where my training started when working with OCD. And it was the model they used there. And the model was adapted from a model that Jonathan Abramowitz uses, who is a bit of a guru, I think, when it comes to OCD research. It explains really nicely of what OCD actually looks like. We use it a lot to help educate our clients that come in of all ages, family, loved ones, etc. So without being able to have a visual, because we often draw this up on the whiteboard, I guess both of us will try to do the best we can in in creating a mental visual representation of what this might look like. Imagine you've got five columns up on a whiteboard and the first heading is trigger. And under that first heading of trigger, we list different things like people, places, situations, thoughts, memories, urges, objects. So triggers can be absolutely anything. Now, we often say to our clients, if you are exposed to a trigger and you have a negative association with that trigger, so if you've had an unpleasant experience with it before, it's only natural that if you're exposed to that trigger or you see that trigger, you're going to experience what's called an intrusive thought, as Tori described earlier. So the intrusive thoughts go in the second column. And under intrusive thought, as Tori described earlier, we put things like it's unwanted, it's automatic, we can't control it popping into our mind. 
And we also put in there that everyone gets them. But often they have people who in the general population without OCD have experienced intrusive thoughts, sometimes don't even notice they're occurring because we get tens of thousands of thoughts every single day. But sometimes they are noticeable, but we tolerate it and it fades from our attention. So that's the other thing that we put in that column. We put can tolerate and fades from attention. And then we draw a green arrow that goes back up to trigger again. So we call that the process of typical functioning. This is where we want to get to at the end of treatment where you might get triggered, you might have an intrusive thought, but we want to build that tolerance and then it fades from attention and then we kind of keep going. However, for people with OCD, when they get triggered and they have that intrusive thought, we move on to the third column, which is worry beliefs. Under worry beliefs, we put things like ruminating, catastrophizing, and what we're doing by doing those sorts of behaviours as well as experiencing other thoughts is We're adding a lot of meaning to that intrusive thought. We're starting to tell the brain these thoughts are serious and we need to start paying it attention. And because we're thinking about all these different things that are occurring, like the what if thinking, the worst case scenario thinking, the really scary thoughts that are occurring, the person then starts to feel really uncomfortable. So then we move into the fourth column, which is distress. And under distress, we list a whole bunch of emotions that are typically experienced, but the list is endless, really. So we put things like doubt, guilt, shame, the not quite right feeling. So important to include. Absolutely. Anxiety, sadness, frustration, anger, etc. And what happens when the person gets to that fourth stage is they're in a real heightened state of arousal. Their emotions are really, really intense. And something really interesting happens in the brain when we get to that part. What happens is when we're in a really heightened state of emotional arousal, there's a part of our brain called the amygdala, which gets activated. If we're familiar with brain anatomy, we'll be familiar that the amygdala regulates that fight, flight, freeze response, regulates a lot of our emotions. And so the amygdala takes over, shuts down our frontal lobes, Our frontal lobes are responsible for logical thinking, reasoning, decision-making, attention, concentration, all that higher order functioning. Impulse control. I reckon that's an important one to include as well. Yes, impulse control is absolutely one of those as well. So we're losing access because that gets shut, that gets turned offline. So we're losing access to all of these things that you need to resist compulsions. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're laughing the same reason I am, which is like, well, of course you end up doing compulsions. Of course you do. If you lose access to these functions that are designed to keep you in check and to help you think things through logically and hold back your urges, if those functions are gone. Yeah, of course you're going to do a compulsion. Of course you do compulsions. Of course it feels impossible to stop. Absolutely. And it is impossible to stop in that moment because it is physically impossible and this is the thing when family members and loved ones when they understand how this part works they're like ah because a lot of the time the first thing family members and loved ones say is let's just try and reduce this a little bit which is what treatment is actually about but it's so hard to do when you don't know how to do that when the frontal lobes are shut down and the amygdala is kind of basically hijacked the brain The amygdala will then talk to its next door neighbor, which is the hippocampus, which is a warehouse for long-term memory. The amygdala will kind of look for evidence that matches the situation that the person is feeling uncomfortable, distressed, anxious, whatever it is, doubtful about. 
And we were like, what did my person do last time they were in this situation that made it go away? And if that person asked for reassurance or looked up WebMD on Google or something or some other thing that they might have done, either washed their hands, checked or counted to a certain number or tapped a certain number of times, etc. whatever it might have been, the more evidence there is for that behaviour, the amygdala thinks, okay, that's how we have to solve the problem. It's reactive, it's quick, it's impulsive and it's immediate. So the amygdala looks for relieving the symptoms immediately. doesn't think about long-term consequences. So an urge is created for the brain to then perform that behaviour and that's when compulsions come in. We have a trigger with an intense emotional reaction followed through with behaviour, those three ingredients are the perfect recipe for encoding that information into our long-term memory. Once we follow through with the behaviour, the distress comes down straight away, the amygdala is like, amazing, I saved the day, my person is safe. Then the threat passes or the perceived threat. The amygdala doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's not in terms of threat. And then our frontal lobes come back online And then we reflect on the situation and go, what the hell was that? (laughs) Why couldn't I have resisted? Why did I do that? It doesn't make any sense. There was no danger there. Gosh, this is so frustrating. Why can't I stop this? Yes, that's right. I was so determined. What happened? I think a lot of people, when they think about OCD, aren't quite aware of just how pivotal the role of the fight-flight response is in this because Before people learn about OCD, I'm talking about practitioners, clients, families, think that there's a lot of OCD that is actually under voluntary control. And what we tend to see is because it is the fight, flight, freeze system that is being activated, a lot of the time people with OCD will not necessarily present with fear. They will present with avoidance, aggression, irritability, the covers, refuse to get in the car, out of the car, refuse to leave the house, refuse to touch something. They'll freeze and not be able to move or they'll be irritable and sassy and rude and they'll talk back. And it's hard in that moment to recognize that what's sitting underneath this is the fight, flight, freeze response driven by incredible amounts of fear and distress, all triggered by the amygdala that has perceived danger. And underneath that, the amygdala, by way of the hypothalamus, is releasing adrenaline and cortisol. So the brain is being flooded with stress hormones and heart rates are up and they're feeling antsy and their bodies are on edge and their bodies are really activated. Stomachs feel sick. Bodies are sweaty. There's all of these physiological symptoms that go along with it that contribute to the sense of discomfort. That process, as you said before, is involuntary. You are not in charge of that process. You are in charge of what happens next and how you choose to respond to that, which is what treatment is all about, about learning to recognise that system at play, learning to intervene before your prefrontal cortex is offline. But I think that a lot of people react to behaviour and understandably so. Just get out of the car. Come on, we're late. Don't talk to me that way. That's really rude. You're just badly behaved. But underneath Mm. all of that is this incredibly complex system that is involuntary, not in a person's control. 
100%. You put that so well. That's part of the education. We spend so much time educating our clients about all of this, don't we? Because it's really pivotal. It also empowers family members to go, okay, I get it now. And so the reactions change straight away when they leave that session. We spend at least minimum one full session on educating our clients, sometimes even two or three. And parents, loved ones, as in partners, siblings even sometimes. The biggest factor of providing this education to our clients is they're like, okay, this is happening to me. I'm not choosing this. This is happening to me. And if I'm learning about it, then that means there's something I can do about it. And they just feel so empowered about that because clients logically know. They're like, I know this doesn't make sense, but in the moment I can't help it. And I hate the fact that I can't help that. When we explain what's going on in the brain and the body and all that sort of stuff, they're like, oh, I get now why I can't control it in that moment. And so, as you mentioned, Tori, part of treatment is learning how to be aware of that and how to be able to manage that so those frontal lobes don't go completely offline when we're doing exposure and response prevention, which is the treatment we use when we're working with our clients with OCD. Yeah. And I think the other component of that is also, given we're talking about systems in our brain, which are actually really important, you can't get rid of them, but also you wouldn't want to get rid of them because these are mechanisms in our brain that are really important. Sometimes people, when they think about OCD, wanting to stop it, but actually what we're really aware of these days is that OCD is considered a chronic disorder. And that doesn't mean that the symptoms are always acute or active, that people after comprehensive treatment can experience long periods of time with like subclinical level symptoms or no symptoms. And they just have to manage those periods of life where they might be a bit stressed or they might get sick or something like that, which sort of triggers off some breakthrough symptoms or some flare-ups. But people can really live great, fantastic lives with OCD, but because the mechanism underneath it is a process in the brain that we can't change, the potential for symptoms to sort of flare up again will always be there. I think that it's really important to normalize that because it helps people manage their expectations as well and to let go of this idea that their job is to get rid of intrusive thoughts or get rid of the urges completely to engage in compulsions, that that actually is a pipe dream. You can't achieve that. And instead, your job is to learn to dial the volume down, to tolerate that discomfort, but get on with your day anyway, and to learn to accept that this is part of being human. Absolutely. And the reason for that is because our brain does a really good job of storing it in our long-term memory because of that recipe of really intense emotional reactions with behavior and triggers, our brain's job is to never forget those things just in case for the future. And so the goal of treatment absolutely, as you said, is to work towards having really long stretches of time, sometimes even years for a lot of our clients, where every now and then get a fleeting thought, know what it is, know how to sit with it, know how to observe it, but kind of just let it be there and get on with their day. And they stay in a subclinical range of OCD, which means not active and all the rest of it. That's important to manage those expectations. Yeah, that's a big role of being a clinician who works with clients with OCD is getting your head around that aspect of what OCD is and how to treat it. Yeah, 100%. This model that we often use and talk about with our clients is applicable to 
any subtype of OCD that exists. There are so many of them. And what we'll do is leave that for another episode. Subtypes, what do you think, Tori? I reckon (laughs) it's worthy of a really good conversation. And I think it marries beautifully with how to assess OCD, which, again, deserves time because there are lots of really great things that we can talk about there. This has been great, Celine. I think that that is a really good foundation from which we can grow. I think that that covers the foundation of what OCD is. It sets us up beautifully to then come back to what it looks like in the room, what an assessment looks like, how to talk it through with your client, how to explore it, different assessment measures that you can use, and then the different subtypes of OCD you can explore with your client. And then after that, we'll get into how to treat it. Really good. Yeah. Fantastic. This has been fun. (laughs) Sounds good. Excellent. Can't wait to do it again. Have a wonderful couple of weeks and we'll catch up with you in the next episode. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and and break break the rules. rules.